Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the University of Florida. And today our guest is Rick Kellerson from West Texas. Rick, thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. And Rick, I'd like you to please give a little background information about yourself. I uh, was born and raised in the small community I currently live in. I uh, grew up on a uh, cotton grain sorghum uh, cow calf operation, very small. Um, my dad was a tenant foreman. Um, uh, graduated from high school, then attended Texas Tech University and, and uh, uh, worked on a degree in animal science. <clears throat> Actually, I was the first one in my family to attend college. Uh, my dad had to drop out of school when he was in the sixth grade to take the farm over. And so after completing uh, my bachelor's, I did a master's in ruminant nutrition. Um, livestock and, and, and forages have always been one of my passions. Um, then after completing graduate degree, I actually moved close back close to home, uh, worked in an operation that was a row crop uh, registered Hereford business along with uh, uh, ag chemicals. And then I transitioned my direction after about four years in that operation and started my own ag chemical business uh, here in the community I live in. And uh, operated it, uh, we did custom application, liquid fertilizer, sold seed, pretty well everything that a small ag uh, company would do, mom and pop operation. We operated that in, until um, uh, 1998, and I sold that uh, business then to a company out of California called Wilbur Ellis. Uh, stayed on as branch manager at that location until 2005 when I was offered a position with Texas Tech uh, to be a project director for an irrigation demonstration project. And basically, uh, uh, water in our area is our primary limiting factor. So it was something that I had grown up with and had watched the evolution and decline of our aquifer and was very uh, concerned and interested in trying to help any way I could. So from 2005 uh, to currently, um, I've been project director for that project uh, and it's uh, currently still still going on. So uh, my background has been both uh, row crop production, cow calf, um, a little experience in the horse business, uh, but uh, just, just grounded in West Texas agriculture, I guess. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and Rick, most of our uh, podcasts here, we talk a lot about the state of Florida and the Southeast here. So you are in a very different condition uh, yeah. than we are here. Can you please uh, describe us briefly like the cow-calf operation in West Texas? Okay, it, it actually, you've got two different types of cow-calf operation. And when you look at Texas as a whole, uh, we have about 4.6 million beef cows in the state. But when you look at average, average operations, and we know what averages mean, but basically most of our cow herds are 50 cows or less. And so you'll see uh, on what I'm going to talk, the top of the panhandle, the cap rock. Uh, in our row crop area, every farm, not every farm, but most farms have some acres that are less productive and, and more marginal that lend themselves more to livestock production than to row crop farming. And we're seeing more than that all the time. And so you'll see small cow-calf operations there. When you drop off the cap rock, uh, which is a, a drop of, in places almost a thousand foot, then you get into what I call rolling traditional 
ranch country. It's not conducive to row crop farming. And so then there, your operations are larger. Um, all of them are rain fed. There's no uh, irrigation associated with those type of ranches, or if so, very, very little. Whereas up on, on top of the cap rocks, sometimes you'll see small blocks of improved grass, different types where irrigation is, is used maybe part of the year. And also an opportunity to plant annual cool season uh, crops that can be grazed like wheat or triticale or rye. Um, so um, kind of a blend of traditional cow-calf from Texas versus uh, a smaller, more, more intense operations, highly managed operations. And Rick, if you had to, to rank probably the, the most challenging factors that are currently um, the cow-calf industry in, in West Texas are facing right now, uh, what would you think they, they would be? In the Panhandle area, sum it up in one word, water. Um, mm. We're in an area that uh, on the average gets 18 inches of rainfall a year. We are fortunate in that uh, about 10 to 11 inches of that rainfall comes from the 1st of April uh, to the 1st of September. So it comes at a time of the year that's conducive to uh, growing grass. Uh, then, of course, then we have to go to wheat or other crops in, in the summertime. But, uh, but I'd say um, in our area, water is the, is the primary thing. Um, when we get into what I would classify as the more traditional type of, of ranch country, cow-calf country, central Texas, south Texas, that land has become, the, the value has become so high for recreational purposes, you just basically can't afford to buy a piece of property with the thought that you're going to be able to pay for it with production agriculture. Uh, so um, you have a lot of uh, high fence uh, deer hunting scenarios and, and you'll see those operations still run cattle. Some of them do, some of them don't. The ones that do though, the cattle are not at the forefront uh, from an income standpoint. It's the, it's the rec recreational uh, purpose. So in our region here, even though our land values in the last 20 years have uh, more than doubled, uh, there is still the potential to pay for that land with agriculture production, whether it be row crop or, or cattle. And, and Rick, do you think that uh, because you are, you are talking about the places that you need to have irrigation and so on and so forth, you, you may need to have a little more intensive system other than when you have rangelands, as you mentioned, that then will be the most traditional. So uh, do you think that those land will and also because of the location that you are really close to a lot of the feedlots there. Yes. Uh, it, it makes more sense. And do you think some of the producers are really focusing more on the, on the stalker uh, side of the production instead of, you know, having a cow-calf pair and wait all that year, so on and so forth? Right. Actually, uh, and I might be incorrect in this assumption, but... Uh, based on 25 years ago, the amount, number of stalker cattle in the region has actually decreased. The reason being this, this region, uh, especially the rain fed areas, and as we were developing a rotation between cotton and other crops, it would usually be wheat. And so we would have a lot of winter grazing for stalker cattle. Uh, and 
but now I'm seeing some of the larger feedlots look at maybe owning some of their own land or taking the land that they do own and transition it away from row crops into uh, both perennial grasses and, and annuals uh, to uh, be able to take advantage of buying opportunities on stalker cattle, uh, be, being able, especially today with grain prices as high as they are, cost of gain so expensive, we need to get as many pounds uh, on those cattle from a forage standpoint and not necessarily from, from a concentrate standpoint. So um, it's like, again, this is just my opinion, it's like a lot of other things we see in, in various businesses is we're seeing a consolidation and a vertical integration uh, where um, not necessarily these guys are in the cow business, but they're taking those five weight calves and, and taking, them, taking them all the way through instead of buying them as 750 weights off of wheat and putting them in the yard. Uh, again, that's just, just my opinion. But the, you know, the, one of the, the great things we have going for us here from a weather standpoint is our summers are hot, but our humidity is low. So cattle perform relatively well. Our nighttime temperatures uh, cool off into the um, 70s. And so cattle have an opportunity that are in the yard to recover from those hotter temperatures during the day. In, in the wintertime, we have cold weather. We have a lot of freezing weather, but bad storms are usually short duration. Um, and so uh, it makes it easier to care for cattle uh, in, in the wintertime. So this is a pretty ideal region for livestock production. And, and more recently, we've seen a big influx of dairies. Uh, the, some of the largest uh, counties as far as milk production are currently in the in the panhandle whereas prior to that they were in central texas as far as texas production goes um, so we've got a very diverse livestock industry uh, in the region and 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 rick you mentioned when we start about the average producer they'll have about 50 cows and and you said yeah the average is a it's it's an interesting number right yeah. but what one thing in west texas that you have that's quite similar to to here in florida is although you have the average with small herds you you have those big ranges yes those those that are on you know the forefront and and people know about their brands and about their history because yes. they have a lot of history behind. And we have seen that those ranches are, are changing ownership. Yes. Lately, in the, in the last few years. Um, yeah. Can you comment about what is the, the perception that you know, most of the, the producers have about that trend of changing ownership? And, and what does the future hold you know, for, for those big ranches, you think? Right. Well, um... You know, the, the, the first perception is you've got ranches that are, have been uh, under one family ownership for 150 to 175 years. The Wagner estate, Vernon, Texas is a great example. Uh, 485,000 acres under one fence. Uh, and it wound up, you had two heirs that couldn't get along and uh, was actually taken over by the courts and was a forced sale. And uh, so th again, there was so much history in that that ranch, and uh, uh, and one of the one of the reasons why that ranch was able to survive is Dan Wagner, who was uh, one of the uh, first partners, 
understood that the only way he could survive was to get along with Comanche Indians. And so he made a deal with Quanta Parker that anytime Quanta's uh, uh, Indians need, needed beef, they could come harvest what they needed to. Uh, anytime they needed additional horses, come get them. There was no problem. Well, then Quanta actually kind of protected the Wagners from, from other Indians, tribes coming mm -hmm. in. So it was, again, it was that ability to understand what your issues were and negotiate and make it work. That ranch sold about five years ago to a gentleman from California that uh, owns a football team. He has no ranching background whatsoever. So, so far it's been operated as a ranch. Um, mm -hmm. More recently, the four sixes, again, uh, mid 1800s, uh, very high class, well-run operation. And uh, the last several years, their quarter horse business had come kind of to the forefront, still ran a lot of cattle, a whole lot of cattle, but they were also running 1500 head of broodmares. And so that's a pretty big, pretty big horse operation. Um, that has sold to a uh, TV producer and uh, that produces Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, what, we're, what I'm concerned about personally is where they don't have the history and the tradition and that does not have uh, any meaning for them is if they get disgruntled with cash flow or weather or whatever it might be, are we going to be able to hold those ranches together? Uh, currently the Swinsons is on the market. It goes, it's one of the oldest ranches of, of the entire group. The Matador Ranch, 125,000 acres in Motley County, 10,000 acres in Western Kansas owned by Koch brothers. Uh, and we've seen them in and out of the cow business uh, in my lifetime uh, in, in various situations. So, um, you know, you, did, you just hate to see that type of history and, and what Texans identify themselves with is those large ranches with, mm -hmm. with uh, um, so much history. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I am always wondering because um, we can talk about the history and, and about all the, you know, the romance that is behind the cattle business, but also you have the business, right? And, yes. and I, am, I am always thinking about if, if those start going away and we eventually have a decrease in, you know, in the herd because they will not right. be interested because, the, you know, the profitability is not there. Right. I am always wondering if that uh, decrease in, in, in the, the amount of animals that you have and also in offering calves and decreasing the capacity of the, of the feedlots because we will not have enough calves, you know, and, and, and then there will be a ball that will keep rolling and, and then get to the point that the supply will be very limited. Right. If, yeah. if, and then price of beef will go to the roof. That that's that's not very good for for, for us for for yeah. anybody. You know? <clears throat> no, it's not. No, we so, we need stability exactly. in the industry from start to finish, and uh, and that uh, that's something that I see is really starting to be lacking, regardless of what business you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have that stability and uncertainty that we that I have had basically all my life. Uh, in, mm -hmm in the ag business. Yeah. Well, Rick, we, we are going towards the end of our conversation here. So um, I would like to really thank you for your time today and participating in the podcast. 
And uh, appreciate the opportunity. So, and uh, I am Joe Vendramini. Joe what? 